This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I think I was stupid enough, naive enough, and unspoilt enough about the world that we live in. Hello, it's Jimmy Doherty here, and welcome to my first podcast. This is the first episode of On Jimmy's Farm. And this podcast is all about giving us some answers to our environmental worries, as well as getting a little bit of the good life along the way. And it covers everything from food, farming, gardening, climate crisis, what we can all do to make a change. And so I thought I'd just wander down on the farm here. I've come into the wildlife park area on the farm just to come and see two of my favorite animals. And they're my Bactrian camels. I've got Arthur, who's this big boy here. He's a lovely camel. And Bactrians are the camels with two humps. And I always remember Bactrians begins with the letter B. B looks like two humps, and then you've got the other camel, the dromedary. D, guns with D, looks like one hump. But Arthur here, he's got his lovely winter shaggy coat on. Beautiful. And they're right at the entrance of the wildlife park. So as cars go past, you can hear a car going past now, they all get a good look at Arthur and Alice. You always make the cars stop, don't you, Arthur? Alice is coming over. She gets jealous, doesn't she? This is what happens. She thinks Arthur's getting a treat, so she'll start to come over. They've got these incredible eyelashes that are there to protect their eyes when there's a sandstorm, and these amazing splayed feet. And these camels, they can deal with the extremes of climate. So one minute, it'll be roasting hot, and then at night, it's freezing cold, and these guys have got to be able to deal with it. Well, look, so as it's my first episode, I thought the first guest, I'd get a friend over and ease myself into it. So I got my old mate, Jamie Oliver, over, and we had a good old chat, got quite excited. It gets slightly shouty, so I apologize uh, for that. But we talk about all sorts of stuff, growing up, our childhoods, his rise to fame as well, actually, um, how he dealt with that. Also, him nearly killing Oprah Winfrey on his scooter. We talk about the sugar tax, we talk about healthy eating, what we can do for the better of the environment. He swears a little bit, but don't worry, because what I've done is I've dubbed it over with some of my favourite 
farmyard sounds, which I think it actually improves your vocabulary. But you do see a different side to Jamie. I've known him since the age of two. So it was a delight just to sit down and have a good old chinwag with a mate. So listen, I hope you enjoy it and I will catch up with you later. Your hair's mad, right? Because every time you see a picture of you or whenever you see like, uh, you know, on one of your books, your hair looks so lovely. But what people don't understand is the work that goes into it. Because if you were to live in the wild for a week, I know. you would look like Stig of the Dump. I look like Cat Weasel. If the humidity comes in, let alone a bit of rain, then it's all over. It's crazy. Thanks for doing this. Pleasure. This is a new thing for me doing the podcast. So basically, this is all about the environment, nature, living the good life, cooking, growing, all that kind of stuff. And as I'm talking to you, you are styling your hair do you know what your concentration is terrible you're not going to get any sense out of this podcast <laughs> and also with this jamie i've known you for years and years but if you feel like you want to swear that's absolutely fine because i won't have swearing in the podcast because what i'm going to do is i'm going to bleep any swearing with various animal noises ah me so if i want to say I just go me. I could do it for you. No, you got the wrong concept. If you were to swear, I'll put me. If you want to swear, swear. You don't have to make an animal noise, right? <laughs> so imagine if you go off and have a have an argument with Jules and start making parrot noises. I will bleep it with my favourite animal noises. Okay, I love that. I think out of all the interviews you've had and all the podcast you've been on and all the tv shows and all the rest of it i think i'm probably more qualified than anyone to talk to you purely because i think i've known you for probably one of the longest periods of all our friends would you say i probably met you age two at play school yeah nursery they call it these days i think your parents arrived in the village probably a year or two before mine and then they took over the village pub. My mum and dad moved out of East London and they found this funny little sort of cottage. I think it used to be an old cricket pavilion that was moved oh, really? to the site, yeah, that my dad did up. Really? But, but then we both went to Clavering Nursery School, which was the old village hall, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was a lovely childhood, I must say. We were very lucky. It was a very natural Huckleberry Finn style. And you were always nature boy, always. Animals dissecting roadkill yeah that was always in me and we were fascinated by anything that moved weren't we yeah but I think my love of nature was equally reflected in like the passion I had for it that you had for cooking because I couldn't work it out to begin with because we all used to work in your dad's pub mm. like everyone like everyone in the village <laughs> used to work in your dad's pub you started bottling up and washing up and then you went into the kitchen and then I was washing up I was always earning money to go and buy like a hamster or a snake or whatever or a lizard terrapin yeah exactly but you you were obsessed with putting almonds on trouts and sending them out. Do you remember that yeah. was one of the dishes? You'd have a yeah. baked trout with almonds on it. And mustard. And mustard. I couldn't work out why you're so obsessed with the cooking, but that was a really early thing. But I think you were quite freaked out by my love of nature and like having animals. It didn't ever freak me out. It made growing up very exciting. And I never knew when I came around your house what I was going to come into in your room. I remember distinctly there was one Saturday night, because it's like, hello, Mrs. Doherty, can I sleep round tonight? I remember going in, and you were doing a dissection on a dead 
vole that you'd found in the garden. It was opened out like a book with pins on a corkboard and you'd taken all the guts out and you were scraping everything out. And I was so angry with my dad because for some reason he was the only publican in Essex that would only buy ready salted crisps, Walker's crisps. But everyone <laughs> else had beef, salt and vinegar, prawn cocktail, and they were the flavours that I liked. My dad had ready salted. So I'd gone into your mum's kitchen and I doused all these ready salted crisps with vinegar. And I thought if I just put them in the, um, uh, what's it called? The hot, where the hot airing cupboard. Yeah. I'm like, dry it out. We're going to dehydrate the vinegar on it. Your bedroom stunk like some <laughs> kind of mortuary. And we ate the soggiest salt and vinegar crisps for our Saturday night out. Yeah, it must have been the weirdest friend. Because then we all the way through school, we went obviously to primary school, Clavering Primary. That was a lovely that was a lovely little school. And then into secondary school. Yeah. And then that's when we went our separate ways. I went off to study zoology. You went off to catering college. For you, food went nuts. Yeah. That was it for you, wasn't it? The be all and end all. And I think it was because it was the only thing I was really good at. Everything I bounced around at school, in some respects, much like you, just I was always good if I was interested. And if I wasn't, I just switched off. And I think probably I'm the same today. Cooking was sort of... My saviour, and I know you went off to Coventry and yeah. started getting into zoology and all the detail of environment and bugs and all that. So it's interesting that we both went separate ways and then came back together again. And of course, the best expression of that is Friday Night Feast, where it's as much about people and place and culture and, and of course, the territory and and the food culture that grows off it. And I missed that show, actually. And, yeah. I, and I look forward to the day when we can bring it back, because obviously that show went for like, I think it was like eight or nine years, wasn't it, Jim? Yeah, it was a long time. But you know what I really love about it? Because we have like, on the end of South End Pier, the weather's always incredible. There's an amazing team on it. We do our little VTs. We go off to individual bits and bobs. But when we come onto the pier... You can have a Hollywood A-lister or you can have, you know, whoever it is that, you know, Usain Bolt or whatever. Yeah. But yeah. it's the moments when we realise that it, we are back at being at school in a class. And <laughs> I, I can look into your face sometimes. I look and go, you little git. Because I know exactly what you're thinking. Yeah. And we both pinch ourselves sometimes just thinking, what are we doing here? How did someone let us on the end of South End Pier talking to, you know, uh, Goldie Horn about her short crust pastry? Do you know what's beautiful, though? Everyone's got, and it's funny, definitely our gesture of payment it doesn't even touch the sides of their day rate. <laughs> so, you know, to want to come on the show, I think Ant and Deck was one of my funnest moments. You know, Usain Bolt, just after he'd smashed the Olympics, was really interesting. Do you remember? He was so competitive. He wanted to learn to chop. I just want to learn to chop. I just want to learn. And then yeah, he wanted to. Yeah. And then he wanted to race. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh man, Usain's going to go back with no fingers. <laughs> but um, food is a big one, and I know it keeps you busy, and it keeps me busy every day of the year. And it's changing so much, isn't it? Everything's changing, and you think how food has changed over the years. I remember when you really started to break through, and that was the beginning of change particularly the change in terms of how food is viewed on television. Yeah. I remember you bringing your first book round. How many books have you done now? Uh, 25. How have you done 25 books? I don't know. Basically one a year, apart from two years when I did Jamie Does, which was a second book that just had to be written, and um, Christmas. I mean, you have... Books like you have kids. You've got... Um, you've, I hope not. <laughs> but it's, it's incredible. I remember the first book, you brought it around to Coventry. I just went, oh, oh my God. That was all the beginning. But when I watched you on... Do you remember the BBC had BBC Good Food? Yeah. 
And it was presented yeah. by Michael, is it Michael Barry? Yes. And they had Gilly Goulding, Oz Clark, and Anti Warhol Thompson. Yes. And yes. that format, it was like Blue Peter's yes. big white studio, wasn't it? You yeah. stood behind this little desk. God, yeah. And Anti Warhol Thompson, he said, So I've got a young chef here called Jamie Oliver. So what are you going to be cooking? And you went, so, uh, mate, what I'm going to do, mate, is that he went, oh, is that right, mate? He sort of gave you a mini dressing down. Yeah. Because no one really had spoken in that vernacular before. It's sort all of gone, all right, mate, yeah. And, and mm-hmm. you know, you look back, everyone was totally unaware of what was going to happen. But that whole naked chef, that changed everything, right? It was a moment in time. And I think I did feel that the world was quite stayed in its presentation of food on the TV. There was protocol, there was a, there was a structure, there's a way of doing things. Yeah. And interestingly, even though I was commissioned by BBC, when I was asked to do TV, which was never expected, I wasn't even supposed to be working that night, but it sat on Channel 4 for nine months. They passed on it. Then Mark Thompson that commissioned me in a week, just like, I, I think there must have just been a mu- You know how hard it is to get something commissioned. Like, I think there was a hole in the schedule yeah. I think they probably had to represent more diversity, even in those days. That diversity revolution hadn't happened then, yeah. but I think it started, you know, with not ethnicity or anything like that. It probably started with age. And I think I just got lucky, really. And Mark commissioned me in a week, which you know is really quick. That's turbo quick. Yeah, it's crazy. And I've spoken to him since about it because he runs the New York Times now in America. And I spoke to him about a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago. And he just said, you know what? I saw you. I saw the pilot that was sort of like, terribly made but had this sort of like energy and I just took a punt on it and I think taking a punt is often in in all of our lives like what it's about you never know until you have a go and for me I had years of the old school dressing me down and sort of patronizing me but I knew the dish that I was going to cook was good and simple and I knew that I picked a more tactical quicker more colorful user-friendly dish and I just thought as they were sort of taking the mickey I'm going to destroy you now I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take you down <laughs> with with energy and enthusiasm, and I did it on that show first. Literally, that memory you brought back, I haven't thought about that since it happened, but I remember it as clear as daylight. It was mad. Not only did you change it in terms of TV, but when you saw the live shows, because I remember you drove up on your scooter. Yeah, it's a proper theatre, right? It's the whole shoot match. You go behind these curtains. There's a massive stage. There's cameras. There's thousands and thousands of people sitting there. You would always write a song. You would always play the drums. But I remember you coming in on the scooter. Yeah. You fell off the scooter on stage. Yeah, a couple of times. Around that same time, it was kicking off in America for The Naked Chef. And I went on the Oprah Winfrey show. And it's very organised to the T. Biggest show in America in the daytime. So I did my walk through the recipe. They wanted me to drive on the scooter. Mm. So they gave me your points, right? So for anyone listening, like, you know, the first AD will come down and put the gaffer tape on the floor. This is where you're going to start and then put another one on the floor. That's where you're going to finish. And then you'd rehearse it. And of course, the next time I did it was in front of a full audience of like 600 people. And then like there was a family that I was cooking with for the week a family of like six. And then there was Oprah. What no one told anyone is that the cleaners came through between the test and polished the floor. And I was wearing a jacket like this, which is a little bit like, it was a body warmer and it was a bit like a kind of life jacket. I came in, burst in, put my foot on the brakes and nothing happened. And I just went... (laughs) And because I had the jacket that was so shiny, I even went even faster. I was going towards Oprah and I wasn't stopping. And his security 
thought it was trying to i was trying to take her out and he kind of got quite feisty yeah the lawyers were obsessed that i was going to sue them and i kept saying <laughs> i don't care i'm fine anyway but that whole thing with you know the establishment when you started would sort of take the mick and you sort of say that you know that they gave you a bit of a hard time on that show anti-war a lot of my heroes gave me quite a hard time i must say i'll cheer you up though right because i've got a story that i was at the nec and i was running our stand at the nec because we used to go up every single year and sell sausages and bacon and opposite me was paul kelly turkey farmer you know him really well and at the end of the day it gets a bit quiet and you get a bit bored so we thought we'd have a bit of fun so we got a five pound note and we put a little bit of fishing wire little thread clear fishing line and we put the five pound note in the middle of the walkway and it's fairly empty then because people were going home and everyone's fairly tipsy because they've been around the booze and doing all the samples <laughs> and then someone try and grab the fiver and you'd pull it away and they go oh you get one over on me Andy Wall Thompson came walking over right and he saw the fiver and he went for it and me and Paul yanked it away from him and it flew away a bit but he went to get it again. I think he went, I think he tried to grab it twice or three times before, before he realised. Oh, thanks, Jim. We got one back on him. But you got him back. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Sticking up for me. We did. We did. But then things just got better and better. And the way that we view food changed massively. But the thing that really stands out for me, your character really came through from the little boy I met all the way to, you know, you know, being a, a superstar, which a lot of people don't realise it's always been there in you, is to help other people. And you started the charity, 15, and you went from the BBC to Channel 4 and you did Jamie's Kitchen. Yeah. And I remember you telling me when we were little lads, because we used to go to Cambridge like, on a Saturday, it was a big trip for us. We'd get our 15 quid in our pocket and we'd go off shopping. Yeah. But yeah. I remember you saying, imagine, Jim, you know, if all these homeless people in Cambridge, if I could open a pasta bar and they could all work in it and train in it and then they could earn money, it's all about working yourself out of a problem. And that seed stayed with you all the way through. And a lot of people could have earned mm. you know, good money and gone, oh, do you know what? I'm just going to buy myself a nice car. I'm not saying you haven't bought yourself a nice car, but you go and do all these things. But you always wanted to give back. What was the changing aspect? Because you had a platform. Rather than go, actually, it's easy street, I'm going to do, you know, do what's right for me and have a lovely life. But why do you say I'm going to risk it all? It's a really profound question and one that I sort of try and take apart quite regularly. <clears throat> and obviously I'm talking to myself, so I, can, I can't lie. Well, I suppose you could lie to yourself, but I think I was young enough. Yeah. I think I was stupid enough, naive enough and <laughs> unspoilt enough about the world that we live in. And I think to your point, like I've always had quite a deep-seated romance towards right and wrong, good and bad, and that reference of the homeless people in Cambridge, which now I know, but like I didn't know then, you know, why was there so many homeless people in Cambridge? And of course, there's five or six areas of the whole of Britain where they have more facilities, better access to services, social care, and cash. And that's why they seem to get drawn to London, Bristol, Cambridge, for example. But I didn't know that as a, like, I mean, me and you would have been 13, 14 then. But when I released the first book, mm. I mean, I think the timing of The Naked Chef was great. I think the energy was really great. Because ultimately, like, food's for everyone. So there shouldn't be, like, a genre or an age group or a bracket. Food's to be owned by anyone. That was the sort of story that you described with regards to the old guard and I was representing the new guard. But of course, yeah. 
there should be loads of guards, you know, and the fact that women were going to work like never before and the old-fashioned men were saying, what's for dinner, love? Sure, but to set up a charity, though, to help young people and go, I'm going to set a restaurant up, because you put everything into it. I think that was from guilt, Jim, because... Really? Honestly, truly, even though I'd started earning a bit of money from the TV show, it was literally probably not worth my while because the time it took. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, A... It wasn't that much. And B, by the time you look at three weeks of my time, I might have just been working. You know, the house I was living in for The Naked Chef was stretching me, kind of slightly beyond my means. So I didn't really have any money. I was skint. And then when the book sold like hotcakes, of course, that's like a vote from the public. So I'd gone from being utterly skint to having money in the bank. And I just felt, obviously, I was elated, but I was genuinely uncomfortable with it. You know my dad, he's quite old-fashioned. He's never earned an easy pound. Mm. It was just on me, like a weight. Yeah. And the only way I could kind of really justify it was to do something extraordinary. And I think, again, because I was young enough, green enough and stupid enough and romantic and passionate enough, that dream, we made a reality. That's a truly amazing thing because you often you don't sit back and look at that because it's easy now. Everyone goes, oh, it's an amazing success and what a great thing to do. But at the time... I was bankrupt, Jim, for three weeks. Yeah, I remember the stress of it all. And even I remember your dad saying to you, you know, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Yeah. And that really struck a chord with you. And I remember a charity event, you brought that up and said, well, look, they're all silk purses now. Yeah, yeah. And it's true. You know, it's true. You plucked youngsters out of dead-end situations where they had no way of really helping themselves, gave them a window of opportunity, and it's changed so many people's lives. It's incredible. The gift of working in the hospitality industry, which is kind of, I guess, profound now because the hospitality industry is getting such a battering, especially right now yeah. with, you know, new regulations and, and lack of confidence, like everyone's just cancelling. What people don't realise is the margins are incredibly low. Making a pound out of the restaurant industry is really hard if you care. If you don't care, then you could probably make a few quid quite quick. Not caring normally involves a lot of freezers and a lot of e-numbers that kind of mean that you're not wasting anything. But the minute that you're working with real food, real ingredients, local producers, then you'll have more staff and then you've got to train them and then you've got to create a culture and then you've got to invest in the actual real industry instead of the fake fast food industry. What's really hard at the moment is mm. the food industry or the restaurant industry, sorry, is all classed under the same bracket. But you can't compare, you know, one of the big pizza brands. You can't compare that to a local neighborhood restaurant. You just can't. Like, even having an EHO person come in and do the health and safety checks and the EHO checks, like, if everything's coming in cooked or full of additives and E-numbers, and you know, you could literally have it out for a week and it'd still be in a fit place to prep. Like, you can't compare that. Yeah. But I've gone off subject, but the point I'm making is the hospitality industry has so much opportunity. There's so many gaps. There's enough room for everyone. You can learn it really quickly if you've got your head in the right mind set and you put the work in. There's no need to ever be skint. You can work anywhere in the world always and forever. Yeah, it's true. My mum always used to say that about being a hairdresser as well. So right. So true. You know, you could work anywhere. It's one of those amazing trades. It's interesting, right, because the whole environmental crisis we are facing, food production is always at the front of that, is seen as the major problem be it large-scale arable farms, be it meat production, whatever it is. Yeah. Eating seasonally is one way 
to reduce our carbon footprint. And we've done quite a lot of work on waste together, food waste. Yeah. But eating seasonally, how can we get that message across, how important it is, without being really preachy? Because the problem I have sometimes but with some of the food shows that I do or some of the food shows that I watch is you think, oh, it's the same message again. And, and do you know what? People have got a busy life. They've got kids and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. How do you get that across without seeming like, it, hang on, it's just like someone talking down to me again? Let's start off being sort of a bit more negative and a bit darker, which is not something that you get from me very often. The reality is, is that the act, the art, the ritual, the action of cooking, taking some stuff, doing some stuff to it and nourishing yourself or your family is about as rare breed as rare breed animals. It's like Latin, right? Everyone's pretending they're doing it and they're not. I'm not saying you and I'm not saying you know, the largely more middle-class sectors of Britain. Yeah. I'm talking broad strokes, per capita population, like people ain't cooking. And they ain't cooking like Mm. big recipes from scratch, hardly ever. It's a very small percentage of people doing that. So it's much more component cooking, which component cooking used to mean sort of chopping up some veg, getting some noodles. And actually we're seeing that squeezed to a bag of pre-prepped veg and pre-cooked noodles. That's now component cooking. So if it's cooking or a family that cooks, the target's moving at a rate of knots, driven by the digital revolution. So if we dare look back in history, and look, your knowledge of this will be very, very good, but I'm generalizing here, but broad strokes accurate. You know, the reason that Britain lost a lot of its deep and rich food culture quite early was because of timing. The British industrial revolution was just perfectly placed we had our industrial revolution way before the french and the italians and the spanish it was kind of like silicon valley we were having our moment and you'd see the creation of brands you know things like hp sauce you know branston pickle these were one of thousands of brands and it was survival of the fittest and mechanization and industrialization and britain is very uniquely placed in not just seeding an extraordinary history where we took a lot of stuff and stole a lot of stuff and traded a lot of stuff and dug in our heels to being remotely relevant as a tiny country in this massive planet. We lost quite a lot of our deep-seated intrinsic cooking culture. It just means that as the Industrial Revolution went across Europe, they were able to learn and they had a much gentler, softer loss of their food culture and retained quite a lot of it. And I think just to get back to where I'm at now, which is the dark side of where I think we're at now, the Industrial Revolution was about forgery and fire and mining and... Coal and steel and all the... Yeah. All of those things. And then it was gas and electric. And these things take years to even think about, you know, the idea of a network of gas pipes around Britain or water, or, you know, this is like years. The digital, this thing, this is weeks, days, months, and no one has worked out yet what on earth is going to happen with this in the next five years. Even pre-COVID, it's never been easier to get food sent to you, which can have its pros and cons, but as per usual with progress, it's mainly cons until legislation or government or fatalities or culture sort of balances out the pros and the cons. The latest national measurement program of our children showed a steady decline in public health in children, primary school age. And if you look at the last year and a half in COVID, it's literally jumped. 
it's jumped like seven, nine percent. So why is that? Because kids aren't going to school because of COVID. They're not getting the school dinners or have the government totally just forgotten about their pledges towards improving. You've started off saying what I think is the third thing that no one mentioned. What they're saying in the research is that it was lack of movement and snacking that was the cause. And I think the 3D part of that that's probably as powerful is the fact that they're not going to school. And even a bad school lunch is much better than lunches that you would or might not even get at home. Yeah. I know you felt what that looks like because we did a whole program on holiday hunger, which is yeah. for the couple of million kids in the country that have free school lunches, which means both parents have to earn less than 14 grand a year. These are families in need. These are our most vulnerable families. And it's very hard to have an opinion that's fair unless you're them because they just want to get food in their kid. They're not thinking about five a day. They're not thinking about E-numbers. They're just trying to put some food in little Billy's tummy because he's had nothing since last night. So hunger is that no food, which it can express itself as that for sure. And more than often it expresses itself in a different version of that, which is too much of the wrong food. And that's where you see obesity spiking as it has in COVID and, and has been since 2000. But yeah, like I said, I was starting off miserable. What I'm saying to your <laughs> listeners is, is don't believe the hype. People ain't cooking. The basket data tells us as a fact that we ain't cooking. We had a spike in lockdown, a bit of, you know, a bit of slow cooking and some bacon and some banana bread, but it's dropped off a cliff very quickly. When I said it's a bit like Latin, it's kind of like Latin's important because it's the kind of the mothership of many languages. So if you know a bit of that, you can know a lot about a lot. And I guess when we're trying to talk about food, where it comes from, how it affects your body, environment, the connection with food and environment, the connection with food, environment and public health, child health, yeah. we have to believe in hope. My instinct is, yes, we should keep on doing that and finding as many cool ways to talk to the new audiences as teenagers become young parents and young parents become more middle-aged and middle-aged people become pensioners, etc. But government legislation and reformulation in the food industry and how retailers, supermarkets, fast food vendors, probably the biggest impact will be from them making healthier things more contemporary and accessible and probably having choice. Because a lot of those fast food vendors only have a choice between a flashing red unhealthy meal and a flashing red unhealthy meal so and also when you go to the supermarket it might look like a lot of choice in the supermarket but you're only presented with what you're presented with they do a lot of research to what the customers actually want and all the rest of it supermarkets are the largest consumers of british agriculture and it's our interface with food vast majority of people buy their food from the supermarkets and unless the supermarkets really want to make a massive change if it comes to eating seasonally you should have these great big aisles are going this is the green food this is what to eat in season now we're getting amber now we're getting up to avocados and red i was thinking about my impact the other day and i obviously i reel my own meat and i want to have grass-fed beef and i want to have dairy and i worry about the methane emissions of dairy but what i've done decided to do is eat far less rice than my dairy because all my dairy is all british i drink organic milk and the rice industry produces the same amount of methane as the dairy industry so i try and do what i can i think well actually the transportation of rice or the rest of it but you can only do what you can do so the idea of getting people to eat seasonally to try and you know lower our carbon footprint it's a difficult thing
Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I mean, one of the great things to do, not everyone can do it, obviously, because you need a little bit of land, but to grow your own veg, even if it's a window box or whatever, to understand yeah. what it takes to grow seasonally. You you now grow a lot of your own veg, don't you? Yeah, and have for many years. And I think it's a really beautiful thing to do. But, you know, I think buying locally is really powerful. And even like in the supermarkets, you know, it's really great to support British farmers, you know, especially now with Brexit. And we all want that percentage of consumed food to be more british and less imported and as we trade as well out of britain there's only one way for britain to go and that is to sell quality if we think that just because we've gone it alone post brexit that we can stack it high and sell it cheap against the americans or any of the other countries we'll be destroyed and barren within a couple of years yeah yeah i mean if you look at brazil australia and the us and their agricultural output if you're producing brandless commodity so it's just a faceless commodity in a sea of commodities it's the lowest price wins and unfortunately they're decades ahead of us decades we're just too small but why not be like the italians and the spanish and have that top end element you know which i think is the way forward and certainly with the rise of china you know there's more millionaires in china than there are people on 100 grand a year in britain they have a huge growing middle class and the commodity in the shortest supply in china is trust so actually britain is really well placed you know they love british products fashion i think britain's got an amazing opportunity as long as we stick to quality you know good value utter quality but like the concept of caring about health or environment or contributing in a positive way or all the issues that are being talked about at the moment actually yes they're really complex and once you scratch the surface they're really deep And you probably won't have time to get in it. But actually, every day when you spend a pound on your coffee, on your sandwich on the way to work, I think what's really fascinating about that, and maybe where we can get cooler, whether we're using tech or not, who knows. But I think where you spend 
that 2.99 on a cappuccino is a powerful vote for one company or another and for fair trade or not and for progress or not and for people being paid right or not i think simplifying where you choose to spend your 50 quid 100 quid and also like for context you know your weekly shopping bill your annual shopping bill your lifetime shopping bill after your mortgage is the second single largest expense of your whole life whole life well the, the interesting thing is the general public want a change so the large corporations are having to follow that. You know, it's got to be made accessible, though, hasn't it, Jim? It's got to be made bite-sized. It has got to be made accessible. It has. It has. Otherwise, people get overwhelmed, you know. But the thing is, is on top of that, you've got the pandemic that hit as well. You've got global warming, all this environmental crisis, and then you've got the global pandemic, which has just thrown everyone into flux. But I think... There's one or two good things to come out of it. And I think there's a reconnection with nature. Yeah. And I was hoping there's going to be a reconnection with food because everyone's cooking. During the pandemic, you were cooking all the time at home and you even started filming it and putting it out as well. Yeah, and everyone was cooking more for sure. Yeah, yeah. Did it get on your nerves having to cook all the time though? Because once you started, you couldn't stop. <laughs> I think at one point you were in your pants. Yeah, just... I was in my pyjamas <laughs> with the worst hair ever. I thought crumbs. <laughs> Obviously, I'm cooking all the time anyway. It's just I'm not just not used to filming a primetime show on a phone with my wife as the cameraman. That was an extraordinary moment. But I think if I'm being philosophical, I think humans are often surprising and extraordinary. I think if they're given good, clear information, they often make great choices. So for me, truth and honesty, however it kind of manifests itself in the food industry, mm. first of all, Britain, as far as countries in the world, is light years ahead. You know, we've had a massive cleanup of the industries and industries, and but we still don't have mandatory front-of-pack color-coded nutritionals. A, there's not one language like mandatory and color-coding mandatory. So you get this real split of own brand supermarkets doing what they should do because they're one of the big five, and then all these kind of good or bad brands that just play the system because they don't have to do anything. And that really stops progress so i think it's the simplest bit of legislation ever i mean it should have been done 25 years ago yeah well we still haven't done it i remember when i did sugar rush i went to the select committee to essentially get interrogated by government officials and experts and doctors and scientists and i did one thing that was kind of weirdly genius is i'd just gone back to school and learned nutrition and i learned how many teaspoons in total was in the can of drink 14 and a picture of a teaspoon and we stuck it on the front of the tin of all these brands that we know what we had done is simplify the truth and there's nothing simpler than a teaspoon and 14. i remember looking at ribena at the time and it's an interesting story this one the nutritional detail on the pack was a for an adult portion and ribena for me is a kid's drink so that's out of whack. Yeah. And then it was for the wrong quantity. The quantities represented weren't what was in the drink. So the truth was so far from the truth. And actually what was interesting is that one of the CEOs, one of the companies, LucasAid, his staff didn't like what we'd uncovered. And they all thought they worked for a health food brand. And he decided as a kind of outlier to be like me. Yeah. And he basically reformulated all of his drinks in about four months, he did all the blind tastings and there was no detrimental effect. The whole industry ganged up on him 
because he became like me, which was basically just someone saying, can we just tell the truth? We never said, take the drink away. We just said, can you just tell the truth? But the thing is, is that it's an uncomfortable truth. Like you said, the solutions are really simple, but there's always a problem. If it's so simple, why isn't it so? And there's a reason, because people are making a lot of money behind it, or they don't want to show there's an ugly face to their brand. So what they did, Lucas said, was amazing. But as a consequence, it's like, you know, when you build dams as a kid and you start taking one stick out and another stick and eventually it gives way, you know, they all have to follow. And do you know what's interesting, Jim? The last data I looked at, which was like a year and a half after the sugary drinks tax, because of how it was structured, so there was different gears to always inspire you to reformulate for the better. It was probably the best reformulation of sugary drinks in the world ever recorded, first of all. And then because they didn't want a portfolio of drinks that was all like, you know, essentially flashing red, they diversified their range. So within about a year, the industry at large diversified, had more choice, more options. They reformulated like never ever in history. And guess what? They made more money. I never, ever got an email from any CEOs thanking me, presumably for getting a big bonus, because <laughs> I was public enemy number one when that happened. Certainly in that first year, it was like 400 million of ring fence money just going to primary schools for breakfast clubs and sports clubs. That was new money from the tax. The tax caused the biggest reformulation and the industry grew. So I think that's a really fascinating example of what good can look like completely start when we put a tax on carrier bags i remember all the supermarkets really worrying about that but what happened is people thought well no it's right i won't get an extra carrier bag i'll bring my own and it got to the point where that little tax meant that you were shamed if you asked for another carrier bag or bought one it kind of becomes symbolic doesn't it it becomes a hundred percent and then actually the supermarkets are not shelling out for all these plastic bags so they're better off the whole pandemic has changed food in terms of our relationship with it but i'm hoping that it doesn't go back it's like the connection with nature we don't lose the gains that we've had i think you're right jim i think what i haven't got around to saying having started off being miserable, which is very un unlike me. Very unlike you. Is I think we're going to have a bumpy two or three years. And I think that then we'll bounce back with a vengeance. And I think smaller and local will thrive. I think if we're lucky, if we care about British culture, and if we care about training and the workforce and the hotel industry, we have to work out a way of distinguishing between the advantages, which are so beyond belief, of not caring in complexity. And essentially that's representing the fast food industry. You cannot compare the fast food industry to a local neighborhood gastro pub or restaurant. Yeah. It's completely different. They should not be taxed the same. No. If you want more British culture as a beautiful, romantic, soft, spongy, cultural thing, you need to invest in it and you have to help them. I think for government and the people in power to get our food culture flourishing, we do need a much more varied way of taxing these small businesses and allowing growth. And Because a lot of it seems to be set up for the big boys. We need more pockets of oxygen, yeah. which means hope. And which means, do you know what? I will do it instead of, do you know what? I'm not doing it. It's funny, you know, I did it. And I know, I think you've done it as well. Like, I went to the Midi Pyrenees and I got essentially knighted by a French network of organizations called, I believe it was a Confari. And I was basically knighted as a knight of the Christie Lot, which is a very particular bread made in a very particular way with 
very particular ingredients guarded by a very particular bunch of people that kept that whole thing alive and they had outfits and they had a medal. And if you times that by about 3,000, that's what is kind of sticking the French food culture together. They have many different groups of that and it can be drinks, it can be cheeses. Yeah, I love that. It's the ceremony. We are both knights of the Mashtaf yes. in Belgium, yeah. which is the beer one. I'm a knight or a priest of the chestnut. <laughs> <laughs> I think people that care have witnessed how easy culture and recipes can be lost. They can be hijacked. They can be hijacked. It's keeping them in purity. You can't always keep something in the bubble that never changes, but you should keep the core of it so it doesn't dissipate. I want to talk about another project that I think is going to be amazing. It's totally different to something you've done. Yeah. But before I talk about that, I think when I look back at your TV moments, I definitely think the school dinners was pivotal and there's one aspect is when Nora has a go at you you can see the frustration that always sticks with me that is a massive pivotal moment because we we watch each other's programs right and then we will text Mm -hmm. each other going I like show what's your hair doing or where'd you get that stupid jump or whatever it is (laughs) but that's why I think it really stood out and I always remember that with my stuff is there anything that you've watched you think oh god yeah that was an interesting aspect I guess the funniest one which I laughed so hard that I nearly ruptured something in my body. (laughs) And I'm sitting there, and it's a bit of a David Attenborough moment, and you're doing this piece of work on this huge whale. This whale that you're swimming next to, basically, (laughs) it's on your head. And this huge, gigantic storm, cloud of (laughs) went straight through you. And my eyes nearly popped out of my head. I went, oh, there is a Lord. Like, my best mate's just been on by one of the biggest animals on the planet so that's good i remember like a massive cultural change in our food culture and the way we view our young people and disadvantaged people you remember me getting (laughs) shot on by a sperm whale (laughs) (laughs) the final thing i want to talk about is your new project right because this is totally different it's this almost like the x factor of food does that make you simon cow luckily no i'm i'm more (laughs) like um i don't know Louis Walsh? Uh, no, I'm not Louis Walsh. I'm more like Dermot O'Leary. I'm the mentor. So I'm on their side. I'll got you. I'll Two got judges you. and a publisher. I mean, you know this anyway, but like, I hate cooking game shows. It just drives me insane. And, you know, I know everyone loves them. That's fine. I don't particularly like them. And I don't like the construct of jeopardy and this, that, and the other. However, I went into this being very cynical. Basically, the winner of this competition gets a cookbook deal. And it's not just one off, like, it's ideally a longitudinal relationship with Penguin Michael Joseph, the same publisher as mine, and the winner we will facilitate, we will mentor to deliver a book next year. Wow. What makes it interesting as a program, the point of it was not to get the same old, same old. So we reached out on social and had hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands actually of people. But basically the question was this, Jim, have you ever thought that you've got a cookbook in you? If so, let us know. Yeah, yeah. And we had without any forcing, the most diverse range of people, ethnicities, ages, backgrounds that you can believe. That's amazing. From surgeons to roofers, you know, and everything in between. And what's interesting about the lens of a book is most of the chefs, all but one actually, just fell by the wayside because just pure talent's not enough. The book has to have a hook 
What's the point of the book? Like, don't just give me another great cookbook by a chef with a load of ingredients that I can't really afford to buy or get or get access to or unusual butchery or this, that and the other. The competition genuinely was open to all because if they had a lived experience of being expert, even in, in a tiny vein of cooking, if they could get that on the page, it could win the competition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a totally different way of looking at a cooking competition, isn't it? I think for the public, they get to see behind the scenes of how do you make a legit book. There's a little bit in there, Jim, about like, could I, should I? Maybe. And I think post-COVID, there's a lot of people thinking about maybe retraining. You know, I've been doing this bloody boring job that has paid the bills for 20 years, but I've always wanted to cook. I hear that time and time again. I have a lot of people in their 40s and 50s saying, I just want to get into the food industry, should I? And I think that this show will kind of amplify those emotions and thoughts. So I hope that it's a nice little antidote to the slightly dark times that we're living in at the moment. And we'll see. Let's hope so, but I'm going to let you go now. But just one final question. With this new show, did Anthony Warren Thompson apply? (laughs) Unless it was in disguise, no. Oh, what a shame. I haven't seen him in years. I haven't seen him in years. Listen, mate, you take care. Thank you very much, Jim. See you later. Cheers, mate. All the best. So there we go, guys. That was my first episode. Having a good old chat with Jamie. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It was great fun. It's incredible having a chat with Jamie because although I've known him for years, he is an inspirational character. He is one of those forces for good. So if you've enjoyed it, Please like, subscribe, leave comments on wherever you get your podcast from, uh, including Spotify. It does really help new listeners find us. And I hopefully I will see you all again on Jimmy's Farm for another episode. Right, Arthur, Alice, come on, who wants an apple? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.